Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, a look at where things stand in the busy and news-intensive 2021 election campaign. Plus, I sit down with Conservative candidate Pierre Polyev. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North, Wednesday, September 1st, 2021. Hope you're having a great time as we are 19 days away to the September 20th election. So we've started to see a little bit of movement. I I know right out of the gate, we talked about it last week, Justin Trudeau dogged by Afghanistan, why there's an election at all, some other questions. This week, it's been a little bit different, Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives have had to go on a bit of defense as well, and we'll talk about that later on in the show. This is a bit of an interesting show for me. You may have uh, noticed if you had been following True North's coverage, I was actually embedded in the Conservative campaign for the last oh, five or six days or so. And this was us media. We had a number of journalists there, but I was the only one representing independent media. And we went through Atlantic Canada, all of the... It was actually quite a whirlwind. We started in Ottawa, where all the, the tours start and end. And then from Ottawa, we went to Deer Lake, Newfoundland. From Deer Lake, Newfoundland, we went to Sydney, Nova Scotia. And then from there, we went to Fredericton, New Brunswick. And then we went to Charlottetown, PEI. And that was all in the span of like 36 hours or something. And then we did a couple of stops in Quebec and, and then went back to Ontario. So it was like six provinces in four days. Uh, yeah, And then I had to get back from Ottawa to where I live in London, Ontario. Yesterday evening, I was talking to my wife and I, I just had a moment. I'm like, wait, did I like where did I get back today? Or I I had no idea. So it was a bit of a whirlwind, but I think it was very important because the whole reason we set out to do that, to be on the ground covering the campaign, is to ask the questions of the conservative campaign this week that the mainstream media wasn't doing. And and more importantly, to get answers to questions on on issues that are very much relevant to a lot of our audience. I mean, we've been fielding questions and I'm going to talk about the most common one. But we'll, we've been fielding questions from you folks watching and reading and listening to our content for weeks now saying, you know, what are the conservatives going to do about this? What's the PPC going to do about this? What are the liberals going to do about this? So we were trying to dig into that and, and actually have boots on the ground. And I think there was a lot that came out of it. And I'm going to share in this episode just some of what we ended up picking up well on the road. We'll be talking to Pierre Polyev later in the show and also talking about a little bit of the horse race stuff. Now, I, I should say, I don't love the horse race as much on a podcast because numbers change so quickly. And as you always hear politicians say, oh, the only poll that matters is the one on election day. They only say that when they're behind in the polls. But I do think these polls are interesting because of how decisive they are and also because of how strong the People's Party representation is. The PPC was supposed to have been in the debates if you were to look at the polls that have come out since the Debates Commission made its decision. The threshold was the People's Party had to have 4% in national polling. They've had 6 7% pretty consistently, but it took them a little while to get up to that point. 
And the debates commission that puts on these nationalized debates had taken its sample before that surge really happened. So if, if they were to measure that today, the PPC would be in the debate, but they don't. They, they set it aside and the People's Party is saying it's an attack on democracy, but they don't really have any mechanism to appeal unless they were to take the debates commission to court. But they've said that just wouldn't be worthwhile. So they're just focusing on campaigning and trying to get their message out to voters other ways. So, yes, there is going to be a little bit this show that focuses more on the conservative campaign because that's where I was. But rest assured, just like we spoke to Tarek El Naga from the Maverick last week, we are covering all the candidates, all the parties. I've got Rod Taylor from the Christian Heritage Party on the show next week. We'll have PPC leader Maxime Bernier on the show. We're just, he's on tour right now, so we haven't quite uh, picked a date, but that will be happening. And I want to hear from you. What do you think the election issues are? Here's the thing that's interesting. One of the biggest issues, and I was getting nonstop emails, ask O'Toole about this, ask O'Toole about this, and like 90% of them were, what's his stance on mandatory vaccination and what's his stance on vaccine passports? And I didn't actually ask those questions because he had already answered them. So I, I just want to put it on record now because I know this is the issue that so many of you care about. He was asked about this a number of times, actually right before I joined the tour. And he was asked, and his answer for mandatory vaccination is that he wants an alternative model to what Justin Trudeau does. Here's how he explains it. We're seeing more private institutions um, and universities and so on adopting mandatory vaccination. Are you open to changing your position on that? My position has not changed. Vaccines are the most critical tool in this pandemic. Every time I get to encourage people to take the vaccine, talk about how safe and effective they are for use to fight COVID-19 to stop the spread. I do so. That's why my wife and I were very public in our vaccination process. We also have tools like rapid tests that can be used on a daily basis. We have masking, sanitation, all the things we've done as a country we have to continue to do. I will respect the personal health decisions of Canadians and we can use rapid testing on a daily basis to make sure we all do our part to fight COVID-19. And here's how he's answered questions on vaccine passports. I will be there for Canadians, for folks from coast to coast. As a federal partner, we will respect the provinces and their decisions with respect to health measures, with respect to balancing the needs of keeping people safe and keeping the economy going. And if the provinces make decisions on proof of vaccinations, uh, vaccine passports, we will support and respect what the provinces decide to do. It is their decision to try and balance off making sure people are safe. We fight the fourth wave of the pandemic together. So you may like or dislike the answer, but he has answered. On a mandatory vaccine, he wants people to subject themselves to the question of vaccination or regular testing. And on the question of vaccine passports, he's saying it is a provincial responsibility, which may be legally sound. But, I mean, my position on this, as you've heard on the show, I'm very much against it. I, I would love to see federal leadership on why this is not what Canada needs, not what Canadians need, or not what they 
should want anyway. But the reality is it's a political hot potato. So he's just saying, yeah, I'm not dealing with it. Let Doug Ford deal with it. Let Francois Legault and Jason Kenney, let them make up their minds, but he's not going to force them one way or the other. So that's where he stands on that. Maxime Bernier has been a fair bit more forceful on that. He's saying absolutely not himself. He himself has said that he's not vaccinated because he doesn't see a need to be. And interestingly, that actually prevented him or is preventing him from going to Atlantic Canada to campaign because many of the provinces there require you to be vaccinated if you don't want to quarantine. So he was able to go to New Brunswick, but he couldn't go to PEI or Nova Scotia this past weekend. And that was the reason he cited. I want to talk about Atlantic Canada for a moment here because this was the the spot that the Conservative campaign went. And interestingly enough, the Conservatives have not done well there at all. Just not at all. There's one Conservative seat in Nova Scotia. There are a couple in New Brunswick, none in PEI, and none in Newfoundland. We hit all four in part because the Conservatives and all party leaders want to say, yes, we're campaigning in all provinces, and they have to pretend that it's winnable. They have to go and say, well, yes, you know, we we really think it's going to be different here. We really think we can win here. What was interesting, though, is how little there was on very specific Atlantic issues in the announcements. We were in, where where was it? I think Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. And it was a, a general announcement that was dealing with affordability. We were in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And it was, again, a fairly general announcement that fit in with the national campaign. I caught up in Sydney, Nova Scotia with former cabinet minister Lisa Raitt. And I was asking her about this, like, cut the nonsense here. Is Atlantic Canada winnable for the Conservatives? This was our brief conversation. So let's talk about Atlantic Canada. This is not an area the Conservatives have traditionally done well, certainly not in the last couple of years. Do you think things are different this time around? And and if so, why? I do. I do because this part of the world um, can definitely move from the liberal side of the books to the conservative side of the books. You just saw that happen here in Nova Scotia with the provincial election where Tim Houston is the premier-elect after 13 or 14 years with the liberal government, Stephen McNeil and then Ian Rankin. So yeah, they can definitely move in terms of, of where their vote is if it's the right issue. They care about issues. They care about certain things that matter to them. And if the leader can connect on those, that's what's going to make a difference. Are the Atlantic issues unique to Atlantic Canada? Or do you think people in the Atlantic provinces, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, PEI, are are receptive to a lot of the broader economic realities and policies that you'd put in a national campaign? Normally, it's pretty much lined up with what voters in Ontario care about, except this time. And this time, it's about health care. And the reason being is that there's a very big demarcation in terms of health care here in Nova Scotia, as there is in Ontario or any of the Western provinces. And they care about that. And it's become a transactional matter in politics. The first question you're going to get is on health care. The second question you're going to get is on seniors. That's the way the demographics are, are settling out here. So leaders have to come to town with a real plan, not a fake one, a real plan on what they're going to do. And voters are keeping track and they are taking count. What is it you're seeing, and I know you're out of politics now, so I'm putting you on the spot here, but what are you seeing in the Conservative platform this time around that you think is going to resonate and is going to hit on those nerves for Atlantic voters? What I see is I see that there's policy being rolled out every single day. 
and not a day goes by when you aren't hearing a fresh new idea. Now, you may not like the idea, but it's fresh, it's new, and people understand that there is a plan and that the plan is being executed on and what people see is discipline, and when you see discipline and you see execution, you have confidence in the leader, and that's what this is all about. Trudeau has made this election about him, and Mr. O'Toole is doing a really good job showing that there is an alternative, and the alternative is Aaron O'Toole and the Conservative Party of Canada. Now, Lisa was very quick to say that she is not at all affiliated with the campaign. She's not running. She's out of politics, but she's still very much supporting Aaron O'Toole. She moderated a, a town hall of his. She was at that event and got a, a special shout out at the, the North Sydney Firefighters Club in uh, Sydney. Well, North Sydney. No, not in Sydney. It was in North Sydney, which I'm told is like a whole different Sydney in Nova Scotia, but up on uh, beautiful Cape Breton. And she's saying, yeah, that, you know, these people are, are really struggling. And you could actually see that. I've been to Sydney once before, and it's a fairly industrial town. It's an old coal town, which, like a lot of other coal towns, not doing too, too well in, in 2021. So people are hurting. The cost of living is very important there. And interestingly enough, there did seem to be, and I just got this talking to a few people around town, a sense that they've been forgotten by politicians. Now, whether they can break this years-long tradition of, of voting liberal, especially in Newfoundland, stands to be seen. But certainly there was a, a sense there that what they have now is just not working for them. Aaron O'Toole had actually called the uh, Newfoundland MPs, the Liberals, the silent six. He said that's how they're viewed by Newfoundlanders because they get elected, they get sent to Ottawa, and then they end up doing nothing for Newfoundland. But the question of whether the Conservatives can do well regionally there, I'm not sure about. One riding, if you check out True North's ridings to watch list that I'm going to be paying a little bit of attention to, is Fredericton. And I just find Fredericton interesting because you had a very strong Green showing in 2019 that elected Green MP Jenica Atwin. Fast forward to 2021, Jenica Atwin is now a Liberal seeking re-election, but there still is a strong Green base there. And I saw one uh, poll or projection about a week or so back in which the Conservatives were actually poised to either win or come very close to winning because of a Green-Liberal vote split. So stranger things have happened, and vote splitting is going to be a very very big issue this election, which is why you're already seeing a lot of people talking about uh, strategic voting, which historically just advantages the liberals because they're often the most winnable alternative to the conservatives. But interestingly enough, I think we are going to see a lot of very narrow uh, wins that may have been because of a vote split of two other parties. And, and that's certainly the case in Quebec, possibly. I, I was in uh, Quebec for a brief period of time on the campaign because Aaron O'Toole has made a very significant and a very concerted effort to court Quebec voters, not just Quebec voters, but Quebecois voters. He's offered a contract with Quebec and he wants to give Quebec very, very wide latitude on a range of things on how federal funds are spent, how programs are delivered. He wants to give Quebec uh, right to the right to assert itself on more in, uh, language rights. So basically further ingrain the French language in Quebec culture and institutions, even beyond what it is now. And a lot of Anglo-Quebecers are even conservatives I've talked to are very annoyed by this. They see it as being political pandering and, and really a appealing to the sovereigntists in an effort to court block voters. I, I spoke to Aaron O'Toole about this at his announcement in uh, Saint-Hyacinthe, Quebec, and I asked him, listen, I mean, first off, 
why are you giving them so much power when this is a, a province that has historically wanted to leave Confederation? And hey, if you think this is how provinces should be, would you extend the same rights to other provinces? This is that exchange. Andrew Lawton, True North. The Quebec government wants to collect federal and Quebec taxes on a single tax return or remit the federal portion to Ottawa. Your platform seems to open the door for this. This is a, a province that has held two referenda on secession, does not recognize the legitimacy of, of many federal institutions. Should they have the right to do this? We need to work with provinces to make things uh, more streamlined, easier, and to make sure that, that we, can, we can deliver more streamlined tax delivery system, the, the, the tax form for Quebec, without sacrificing jobs in parts of the regions, in Shawinigan and Jean Care. So we've taken a very balanced approach to say we're going to work with Quebec on this and make sure, particularly after COVID-19, we're not seeing more job disruption, more dislocation at a time every single job really counts to get the country back on its feet following COVID. Your proposed contract with Quebec offers wide latitude to the province on language, immigration, a law that runs contrary to religious freedom, opting out of federal programs, the list goes on. Are you prepared to offer the same deal to any other province that wants to assert a bit more independence from Ottawa or just Quebec? I want to make sure that our country gets back on track after COVID-19. I want to make sure the federal government stops interfering in areas of provincial jurisdiction and has a federalism of partnership. That means respecting autonomy and partnering. And in some cases, if, if provinces can, can help deliver a program even better, we should have shared or cooperative federalism. That will be my approach. It's why we're going to tackle the unfair ideological measures that have held back uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan, for example. It's why we're going to give Quebec more autonomy and immigration to preserve the importance of the French language and to tackle the huge shortages in the labor market we see in this in this province. The last thing we need is more years of Justin Trudeau and Ottawa knows best. It's leaving us less prosperous and more divided as a country. So he, he doesn't come right out and say it, but he, he seems to be indicating there that yes, he supports finding a winning formula with provinces to work within Confederation and perhaps deliver more programs themselves if they can do it more efficiently. Now, if you're an Albertan tuning in, you may think, okay, yeah, he's just pandering to Quebec. But actually pay close attention to that because if he's offering a deal to provinces, to any province to allow themselves to have a bit more autonomy, that could square very well with a lot of the pushes for Western independence that we've been talking about on this show and that certainly people in Western provinces have been talking about, not just in the election, but for the last several years. I spoke with Pierre-Paul Hugh, who is a conservative candidate, a longtime MP. He's seeking re-election in Charlesburg, haute saint charles about this. We caught up at a rally in Trois-Rivières, and I wanted to ask him about that. Listen, you're a Quebec conservative, but you're also a Canadian member of Parliament. What do you say to people who think this platform is just pandering? Here's our exchange. So let's talk about how things are going in Quebec. This is not an area where Conservatives have historically done really well. What makes you think this election is going to be different? Actually, uh, on, on the ground, it's, uh, it's clear that some things happen right now. Uh, I've been elected from, uh, for six years now and from Quebec City and with my, ten, my line, other colleagues, uh, Conservative MP, uh, we actually understand how it works and it's crazy. We have good momentum. Uh, people are looking for Renault tool and they say, oh, okay, it's different, 
we like this guy. So people are in Quebec. I can't, I can't imagine, I can't say we will be, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 MPs, but just some things happen on the ground. Nationally, the campaign is very much about uh, Justin Trudeau versus Aaron O'Toole, the Liberals versus the Conservatives. In Quebec, things are very different. You have some ridings that are Conservative-Liberal, others that are Conservative-Bloc Québécois. How does the message really resonate in those ridings when it's not Liberal votes you're after, but uh, Bloc Québécois votes? It's, uh, that's true. In Quebec, we have the Bloc Québécois, and then we have a lot of ridings. The, the fight is between us and the Bloc. So the things people have to look is who can do things. So actually, with the, the plan we have, the contract we're able to have with Quebec, it, it's resonated strongly with people because they trust him, they trust us, and it's okay. So now, if you want something real, we have to have uh, a party who will be in government to change things and to support Quebec government. And the Bloc Québécois can do this. There have been a lot of conservatives, especially out west, that uh, view that contract with Quebec as political pandering. What's your message to them? Oh, I mean, it's a... Uh, when we are in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, we have to look things to help people over there with their own issues. And in Quebec, we have our own issues. So if Irene O'Toole wants to, to work with us, to, to work with the, the conservative MP from Quebec, to make sure that our people are okay with different things, uh, with the language, uh, especially, it's French for us. As you can see, my first language is French, but we don't have a fight with English people we work with. So, uh, and... And I, in the House of Commons, as a Quebec MP, I was always there to help my colleagues from Alberta, BC, and to, to help them with the, the, the oil or whatever they want. So it's a, it's a teamwork for us. A lot of the economic issues that have been dominating on the campaign, support for families, recovery from the pandemic, are these truly national issues or do they, they have different unique elements in Quebec that, that are kind of separate from the national discussions on these things? Not really, because the economic recovery is for everyone. So with the pandemic, it's uh, the same message all across Canada. We, everyone is upset with Justin Trudeau. Everyone sees that it's, it's crazy to have a debt over $1 trillion. So we have to do something, and we have to do it now. So it's why people are actually they're very upset of Justin Trudeau. They say, okay, we need to change. And the, 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 the taste, but the, the will to change is very strong, and it's strong in Quebec too. Now, interestingly enough, only by my by my read, only the People's Party of Canada has pledged to review and reduce equalization. This is timely because there is an Alberta referendum coming up in October on equalization. If it passes, the federal government will have to negotiate, at the very least, negotiate with Alberta on equalization, on amending the Constitution. But so far, there's been no commitment from the Liberals, the Conservatives, the NDP, to actually take that negotiation in good faith and give Alberta what it wants. Only the People's Party has. In a, in a release put out on August 31st, uh, Maxime Bernier said in Red Deer that equalization was supposed to be about ensuring access to a similar level of services across the country, but now it's unfair and inefficient. It disadvantages uh, some provinces and also is based on a formula that simply isn't working. So, uh, But ultimately, there hasn't been a lot of talk about equalization because the provinces where all the votes are are oftentimes the recipients of equalization payments. So you can't go to Atlantic Canada and say, we're going to stop sending Alberta money to you. You can't go to Quebec and say, we're going to start transferring less federal money. So it's a, a very dangerous political position to take, but one I think that very much needs to be at the very least discussed. So that's uh, how equalization is factored in.
But we are seeing these regional breakdowns here where uh, there's a lot of attention, as always, in Quebec and Ontario, and Aaron O'Toole really seems to be driving a Quebec strategy. So will this come at the expense of other provinces? That's the big fear that everyone has. Certainly, we all hope it's not the case, but I was trying to get a sense of that as we were talking on the campaign trail. There was a fair bit of access on the campaign because, you know, every journalist who was traveling with the tour got to put their uh, two questions to Aaron O'Toole every day. I won't go and play the litany of them for the last week, but you do uh, have to check out the coverage that we've been publishing at True North if you're interested. I do want to focus in on one, though, because one of my big priorities going into this was trying to square some of the distinctions between Aaron O'Toole in last year's leadership race and Aaron O'Toole in the general election campaign now. There's always a difference. There's always a difference. You always want to play to the base in one and then try to play to the mainstream population in the other. But on very specific things, like we spoke about a week and a half ago, uh, CBC funding, for example. In the leadership race, it was defund and privatize. In the general election platform, it's, ah, well, let's maybe talk about possibly reviewing the mandate, seeing if maybe there's a, an alternative business model that might, might work. So quite a significant distinction. One that I've really wanted to dig into, though, and I, I don't know if I have an answer to give you, but I want to show the answer that I got anyway, is where Aaron O'Toole stands on free votes. So this is, I think, a very important question because in the leadership race, his success from social conservatives came from the fact that he was saying, listen, I'm not one of you. I'm pro-choice. I'm not going to vote pro-life. I don't want this to be a party that puts forward pro-life legislation, but I will let you vote your conscience. I will let you vote freely, and I will let you represent the things that you need to represent. That was his pitch. And for social conservatives, they said, all right, it's not ideal, but it's either him or Peter McKay, and Peter McKay wants to sell us down the river. They all voted for Derek Sloan or Leslie Lewis first, but then they put Aaron O'Toole down their ballot and that was what gave him the victory free if you could kind of distill his leadership campaign into one single promise that would for me be it that the free votes that was the the flagship promise because that was the one that allowed him to say i'm the big tent conservative candidate i'm representing all of the parts of the conservative party well, this past weekend, it became candidate day, where all of the opposition parties, the media, started to pluck all these different things from different candidates and try to throw the battle tool and say, well, how do, you, what, how do you respond to this? How do you respond to this? One candidate in Dartmouth Coal Harbor actually had to step down because of sexual harassment or, or sexual assault allegations, which uh, the party responded to very promptly. You also had Cheryl Gallant, a longtime MP, formerly an Alliance MP in Renfrew, Nipissing Pembroke, who was maligned by a lot of uh, opposition voices because she said that the same people that brought us the COVID lockdown could bring us a climate lockdown. And this was something that, again, everyone got into a tizzy about, and I'm thinking, well, that sounds reasonable enough, because absolutely, the whole point of the pandemic lockdown is that the term emergency was used to justify any range of restrictions. So she was pointing out in a video that's now been deleted that, well, the same people are saying that climate change is an emergency, so what are they going to do under the auspices of its emergency status? That was the point that she was raising. But in any case, people in the media was asking, well, why does she get to stay as a candidate? What, like, where's the line? And later on, 
Aaron O'Toole put out a statement. He was firstly talking about his climate plan in the statement, but then he said, I want to make it clear, this is the plan I'm running on. It is the plan conservatives are running on, all of them. If I am elected prime minister, it is the plan I will implement. If there are any candidates who don't support it or any other part of Canada's recovery plan, they won't be sitting in the caucus of a future conservative government. So there's a little bit to unpack there. So Canada's recovery plan is the name of Aaron O'Toole's platform. It's what he calls the platform. It's the little book that he takes out on the campaign trail and holds up at every stop. That's the entirety of the platform. In that are things about economic recovery, uh, healthcare, things about seniors, the climate plans in there, moving the embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem's in there, and not introducing pro-life legislation is in there. This is why it's important. Because he's saying in this statement, if there are candidates who don't support the climate plan or any other part of the platform, they will not be able to sit as conservatives. So is he saying here that he's walking back his commitment to free choice and free votes? Now, I asked him about this in King City, Ontario at a campaign stop on Sunday. Okay, lay it out. Which votes are going to be free votes? This is the exchange. Andrew Lawton, True North. During your leadership race last year, you committed often to allowing free votes in caucus. You spoke uh, numerous occasions about the importance of having a, a Big Ten party. Yet in your statement yesterday, you said if MPs and candidates don't get on board with the climate plan and every single aspect of your platform, they'll be booted from caucus. So specifically, sir, on which issues will you allow free votes and on which, it, which issues will you uh, demand uh, a vote in, in favor of a particular proposal? We are running on a plan, Canada's recovery plan, which the country needs to get back on its feet. On the first full day of the campaign, we launched our plan. All of our candidates are committed to the plan. It's exactly what the country needs. Jobs, accountability, mental health leadership, preparing ourselves for the next pandemic, and a commitment to getting the budget balanced over the next decade. Everyone will be focused on that plan and a positive campaign. So as you hear there, not really an answer, not a clear answer anyway on are you committed to free votes and if so, on which issues? Is it only going to be on social issues? Is it going to be on other things or is it going to be on nothing at all? So that would be a question that I'd have, and that's one I'd actually like to hear answered as the campaign progresses. So I wanted to give a cross-section, and interestingly enough, I've been simultaneously accused, oftentimes within minutes of each other, in the last week of being a shill for O'Toole, to then being like a shill for Bernier, to being a, a liberal hack. I've been called everything, which I guess means I'm doing something right if people think my coverage is landing on all sides. I'm about the facts. My loyalty is not to a party. I have beliefs. I have issues that I care about. But I'm not here because I want to get a particular color represented. I'm trying to get you the information you need and you want to make a decision. So that's my commitment. If you think I'm on your team or not on your team, that's not the fight that I'm in right now. I'm here to get the facts for you and to bring the debates, bring the election into a realm that the legacy media simply isn't doing on the issues that I know a lot of you care about. So that's the goal. Let me know what you think about it. And we got to take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll talk to Pierre Polyev here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. 
Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Just before I hopped on the Conservative campaign plane last week, I took a trip out to Carleton, which is just outside of Ottawa, to sit down with its longtime MP and now the Conservative candidate there seeking re-election, Pierre Polyev. Wanted to chat with him about how his campaign's going, but also what he thinks the big issues are. He's been, I'd say, next to Aaron O'Toole, the most prominent voice in the Conservative Party right now. In fact, some would argue he's been more prominent than Aaron O'Toole at certain points. He's served as the employment minister, and I know anytime we've had him on the show, everyone always wants to hear what he has to say. So here's my uh, sit-down at a park in Greeley, Ontario, with Pierre Polyev, Conservative candidate for Carleton. This was an election that certainly everyone knew was coming at some point. Minority yeah. governments are, are not particularly stable. I think the question was more of one about when rather than if. But if you had to characterize the election themes, where we are now, I, I know a lot of people thought it was going to be a pandemic election, but now we have this Afghanistan crisis. When you're knocking on the doors, what is the election actually about to people? Well, people are trying to figure that out because uh, Trudeau caused this election to occur and his campaign has been a Seinfeld campaign, a campaign about nothing. Uh, people uh, are sort of waiting, you called this election, do you have something to tell us? Do you have a, a big agenda that you have to ask our support for? And the answer is no. He has absolutely nothing new to say. He simply called the election in retrospect because he thought uh, he could get away with uh, uh, securing a majority uh, while in the immediate aftermath of spending a half trillion dollars while people were still afraid of COVID. So I, I joked uh, earlier today, his slogan should have been uh, quick, no one's looking. Because um, uh, I think that's how he thought this would go. He'd just call a snap election, partly in the middle of the summer, partly while farmers are out at, at, at uh, getting ready for harvest, and, uh, and that people just wouldn't have any time to think or scrutinize and would accidentally secure his majority mandate. Uh, and it's not turning out that way at all. There's been a massive backlash against him for calling this election. Um, and then uh, not only that, uh, he's... Uh, this is the worst run election campaign the Liberals have ever done. He's gone from uh, the wonder boy to the blunder boy. Um, every day, it seems, there's a gaffe, you know, uh, whether it was um, Liberals saying that the, Af that the uh, Taliban uh, are their brothers or, or him, uh, Trudeau, admitting he doesn't know anything about monetary policy now when we have among the highest inflation in decades uh, and people can't afford to buy a home. Uh, or this recent gaffe where they are now saying, the, admitting um, for the first time that they, we knew all along, which is that they're going to tax uh, gains on primary residences. Um, these are massive gaffes, any one of which should cost them the election. We've seen this government skate through a lot of pretty difficult things without really being challenged on it. You look right. at SNC-Lavalin and they yeah. followed that by a victory in, in 2019, yeah. sure, coming down to a minority. The Wee scandal as well had legs for a while, as we say, but then the government prorogued Parliament and it seemed like a lot of the scrutiny on, on that went away. And I remember, a lot, as a lot of Canadians do, that press conference where you were showing all of these documents that the government had redacted and still I haven't heard Wee brought up a single day on this campaign. What do you think needs to be done to get Canadians, and by extension, I guess the media, to care about these things? Well, the media will, the mainstream media will never care about any of them uh, because they almost, almost unanimously support Trudeau and want to see him reelected. Of course, he bought them off with the half billion dollar media fund. 
Uh, but let's not forget, though, that the Conservatives won more votes than the Liberals in the last election. He got the lowest share of the votes of any prime minister who to be reelected in Canadian history. So it's not as though he's a particularly popular prime minister. Uh, you'd think he was if you just watched the CBC National. But if you look at the data, he's actually quite an unpopular prime minister who's been very lucky about the distribution of vote that has allowed him to preserve power with a very small, but less than a third of uh, voters uh, backing him. So let's talk a little bit about what the Conservative answer to that corruption right. allegation is, because I, I know the platform this year has some stuff to crack down and give a lot of these conflict of interest and ethics violations uh, that are found to have happened to a bit more teeth in the response to them. But but how can you really combat that in practice? Because, I mean, in general, there's, I think, a malaise and a distrust of politicians. But but what could a, a Conservative government do better that would make it so these things don't happen with impunity? Uh, well, uh, for one, there has to be more consequences for uh, guilty findings, uh, particularly compounded and serious guilty findings for, uh, for politicians violating the Conflict of Interest and Ethics Act. Um, uh, secondly, I think we uh, have to toughen up the whistleblower protection so that it's easier for people to speak out when they see corruption. Uh, and uh, But third, I think the people of Canada have to exercise accountability at the ballot box. Ultimately, that's the way our system works. Um, we have uh, a system of democratic accountability uh, more than um, bureaucratic uh, rules. Um, you know, it is one thing to have uh, public authority like the ethics commissioner examine behavior and then compare it to a law and issue a finding, but it's a not quite another for the voters to say they've had enough and throw the guy out. And I think that's the ultimate accountability that we can show on election day. Let's talk about the financial situation here. We've all seen that PBO report that says yeah. we're on track to run up deficits for the next 50 years. Right. And at that point, it doesn't even become relevant because it's just so many billions and, right. and trillions of dollars of, of debt and debt service payment and all of that. Realistically, how is a fiscally conservative approach even possible when you're, you're coming in if a conservative government's elected with that much baggage? I, I know your platform is to balance within 10 years, but, but practically, how, how does that actually happen when things are as dire as they are now? Right. Well, good question. I mean, first of all, I don't think it's just practical. I think it's going to be unavoidable. Um, the current deficit uh, is driving inflation. Um, whenever you create crash, you inflate the, the price of things. And the government has created $400 billion uh, of M2 money supply, which is to say coins, bills, and bank deposits in just over a year, which is the biggest increase in money supply ever. Uh, in percentage terms, it's the biggest since 1974. Um, and we remember what happened in the late 70s. We had hyperinflation in the double digits. Uh, followed by massive interest rate hikes uh, to nearly 20%. That is, uh, uh, we don't know exactly what the future will bring, but we know that the history of, of money printing has been a runaway inflation. So whoever forms government is going to have to rein that in unless we want to continue to see out-of-control price increases that uh, destroy the middle class, um, uh, drive the poor deeper into poverty, and inflate uh, the wealth of the super-rich. Um, I think we probably, when we look back on this and the data comes up, we'll see that this money printing binge the government is on will uh, lead to probably the biggest uh, expansion of the wealth gap in Canadian history as um, wealthy asset owners 
people who hold gold, um, real estate, uh, stocks, bonds, and other uh, appreciating assets uh, saw their net worth skyrocket while the wages of the working class are chewed up by inflation. So the answer to that, of course, is to, to, to stop printing money and start creating the stuff money buys. Build more houses, grow more nutritious food, build pipelines to bring Canadian energy to Canadian consumers. Uh, that way we actually uh, produce the things that dollars buy and, and thereby increase the value of our dollar relative to the goods we need to purchase. So, the, so we're going to have to get spending back to normal pre-COVID levels as quickly as possible. Uh, bring in a pay-as-you-go law to ensure that every new dollar of unbudgeted spending is met with a dollar of savings um, and unleash the free enterprise system so businesses and farmers can make more here in Canada. We heard Justin Trudeau say that he doesn't think about monetary policy and the answer... I, I, I believe him. <laughs> I, who doesn't believe him? Like, I don't believe a lot of things he says. That one I believe. What I found more interesting than that was what he said in response, kind of to justify it. He said, I don't think about monetary policy, I, I think of families. Yeah. When I'm thinking, well, hang on, how, how does monetary policy not affect families? But there right. is a, a question in that, though, which is that do you think Canadians understand and, and care about these inflationary issues you're bringing up? Because, again, it, it does get in the weeds, and a lot of Canadians are thinking, let, let, cut, the, cut the nonsense, what's it going to mean for me? But, but do you find that that is a discussion that is taking place in Canadian households? Oh, it's taking place in shopping aisles. It's taking place in uh, home showings uh, for uh, with real estate agents. It's taking place at the gas station when people are filling up their cars. Uh, and that's why this deficit issue has gone from the abstract to the highly vivid and practical. People are actually witnessing what deficits do to their cost of living. Uh, whereas, you know, a few years ago it was an abstraction. The consequences were not yet visible. Now people see what it's doing to their lives. It's chewing up their, uh, their dollars uh, in the present. Uh, so there's no doubt people uh, make the link between overspending and inflation. Uh, they, they live it, they see it, they feel it. Uh, and uh, the fact, I think one of the reasons why Trudeau is in free fall in the polls and why conservatives are gaining is because people know that if Trudeau is reelected, there will be a continued explosion in inflation and a, and a cost of living crisis. You mentioned earlier that this election, you think, is about Trudeau seeking a, a majority. He's had relatively unchecked power with the yeah. NDP and, and the bloc backing him for the last couple of years. But, but realistically, what do you think the consequences of a Trudeau liberal majority would be? A massive debt crisis. Uh, right now, Canada has about $8.7 trillion of debt, personal, uh, corporate and government debt combined. That means we have $4 of debt for, $1, for every $1 of GDP. So a one percentage point increase in the effective interest rate on all debt in Canadian economy uh, will cost $87 billion every year, one percentage point, or a f it will cost 4% of GDP. Just put that into perspective. Imagine one percentage point increase in the effective interest rate that we all pay on all our debts uh, would cost 4% of GDT GDP. Um, at a federal level, a 1%, just in, debt, in terms of the federal debt, uh, a 1% increase in, in interest rates means $12 billion in extra costs. Uh, that's, uh, you know, much more than the a one-point increase in the GST. So, like, you start to think about the, the enormous costs that are, we're going to face when interest rates eventually rise. Uh, that, that problem will only worsen if we re-elect a prime minister who's determined to further indebt the nation. 
um, we uh, we will face a serious debt crisis, and that will bring a, a catastrophic human tragedy. Uh, so what we need to do is uh, make a shift now away from a credit card economy to a paycheck economy, to unleash the productive forces of our economy, uh, to make more, cost less, paychecks, not debt. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great to be with you, Andrew. That was Conservative candidate for Carleton, Pierre Polyev, here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Great sitting down with him in eastern Ontario. That does it for us for today. We will be back with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show on Friday and following not just the election, but I'm also going to dig in on Friday to Ontario's vaccine passport announcement, which came out today. This is a very big one and one that I think will need to be delved into in a lot of detail, but there was so much to talk to election-wise today. I figured I'd actually take the time to go through it and bring that up on Friday, but that is coming. Thanks so much for all of you for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.